Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. You know, maybe instead of asking, why doesn't she leave? Why aren't we asking, why doesn't he just leave her alone? Welcome or welcome back. This is Crime Over Cocktails, and I am Tiffany, your host. Today, I have my guest, Sandy Johnston, with us, who is a survivor of domestic abuse and the founder of the Key to Be Free Transformation Services. And she's also the host of Tiara's Tears and Triumphs podcast. I love that name, by the way. So cute. Thank you. I love your podcast name, too. I think it's so cool. (laughs) it's very nice to have you here thank you thank you very much for having me tiffany so i won't go back to you know the the very beginning of the time that i came into this earth um so i've been around for you know a few decades now (laughs) so and i guess i it's a good time place to start is in childhood and maybe you know the perception that i had of myself, that feeling that I had about myself as a child, I felt like I was the black sheep of the family. And I think that, you know, people can often relate to that because they feel like they don't quite fit in with everybody else. And maybe they're a bit of a rebel, you know, they just see things differently and they feel like they don't fit the mold, you know. So that was me as a, a child growing up. And I suppose I, I was a bit of a rebel and I took uh, some risks and some chances and and I did that with ambition in mind because I had these dreams and desires of having success in my life and kind of just, you know, like having a dream life. If you were watching, I I could pull out photos of myself as a little girl being that princess or wanting to be that princess where I'd be dressing up in these dresses and have a little tiara on my head. And, And that was kind of, you know, in my fantasy world, I thought that that was possible to, to be that princess and, and wear that crown and have that kind of esteemed life. And that was a huge contrast to probably the life that I was really living, you know, where I grew up in a very ordinary family. I suppose if you're talking classes and we don't talk about differences in classes so much these days, but you know, when I was a child, there was the middle class and I guess we fitted into that middle class. We weren't rich, we weren't poor, we had everything that we needed, we had food on the table and bills were getting paid. I got to have go and have a private school education in secondary school and I grew up with a lot of stability but there was some instability going on within that. My father had a business, his business failed and that put us under a lot of financial pressure and so we had this dream property. We were on like acreage and I had a horse and you know we had other livestock and it was a really, was an idyllic life that I really loved and didn't want to let go of but that was forced upon us because of 
those circumstances where my father's business failed. Unbeknownst to me, that had a massive impact on me and I guess my relationship with money and my relationship with my worth and how I really, really did this thing of aligning my worth with what I had or what I didn't have. So that was really influencing the way that I was feeling in myself as to whether I was a success, I suppose, or a failure. Life has its ups and downs. So I I didn't have the tools at that time to, to deal with that. Being the risk taker that I was, I was an exchange student when I was 16, actually lived in America for a year. I lived in Colorado. I went to Rocky Mountain High, absolutely loved it, had, you know, the time of my life, came back to Australia sounding like an American. And I was full of, one thing I really love, there's, even though we speak the same language, there's a cultural divide between Australia and America. And although we've kind of adopted lots of American um, ways and um, you can imagine like there's, you know, through television, through film, there's huge influences coming through from America into Australia. But from my observation, from my experience, when I lived in America, Americans seem to have a lot more confidence, self-confidence, and they're able to express themselves really openly and also with a lot of conviction behind what they're saying. And Australia is very different to that. So I'm a performer as well as as other hats that I wear. And, you know, it's definitely something that you need when you step into that performance space is to have that self-confidence and be able to express yourself openly and with conviction. If you're not able to do that, then people don't know why they need to invest in whatever you're saying. When you're performing, you've got an audience and your audience is going to be either engaged with you or disengaged with you. And American audiences are very lively and very encouraging and very enthusiastic. And, you know, they give you that feedback that you need as a performer that you're like, yeah, they love me. They get me that, you know, like, this is great. And that's the thing that self confidence, you know, like stems from. You can't have self-confidence without having some feedback. You need to have that feedback. In Australia, sadly, you don't get that feedback. It's kind of almost as though you're sitting there and for any Australians that are listening, you know, please don't be insulted, but it's hard work getting that kind of encouragement that, you know, you don't, you're left sort of second guessing about the way people feel because Australians are by nature more reserved. And it's not that they're not, they're lovely people. They're, you know, like I live in a beautiful country. There's a lot of great things going on in Australia and I'm very proud to be Australian. But there's this cultural divide that I found, you know, really noticeable when I had that experience of living in America. So I came back to Australia full of all the joys and confidence and everything, you know, from this year of living abroad. And what happened is that I went into a new school and everybody was so like wowed by my confidence that 
they voted me in as class president, even though like nobody really knew me from a bar of soap. They were like, oh my God, you know, she is passionate about what she's talking about. So let's vote her in. And I'm like, okay, great. So that's that confidence stood me in really good stead. And that that was part of the me that I really loved, you know, the the me that I really related to, the authentic me. That's that's what felt good. And I think we can lose ourselves and that's what happened to me. And going back to this perception of being a princess, okay, which given all of these messages about, you know, like when you look at the Disney movies and everything about the Prince Charming coming in, you know, on his beautiful horse and coming and he rescues us. You know, look at, you know, Sleeping Beauty, he'll come and he'll give her that kiss and he'll wake her up and they'll go and they'll live happily ever after. Now, he's the one who is the hero. He's the one who is that one that provides all the security, that gives the princess that realm that she can rule her life from. And that was my perception of what I needed to be able to rule the realm of my life. And I lost confidence in myself and gave that over to the person who I formed a serious relationship with and married. He was a very interesting person. He was very worldly and well-traveled and had been very successful and managed, uh, you know, international bands. And but he was he was a bit like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. He had two distinct sides to him. And because I had been brought up in a very conservative Christian upbringing, I was taught that to turn the other cheek. I was, you know, taught to the man was the head of the house that. Um, you know, I should basically defer to the man and if he was in a bad mood and he was grumpy and, you know, that I should just accept that. So I didn't have any safe boundaries around myself doing that. I just allowed myself to become a doormat and I allowed myself to really just be an open target to his ups and his downs and you know one minute he'd be really super sweet and loving and generous and the next minute he would be scathing he would be you know horrible he would say just really revolting things to me and think that he was completely justified in doing that because he was stressed out and you know like there was always a reason why he should be able to be this stressed out individual and basically I was his punching bag. That relationship, it it was very insidious. It was, uh, I was very unhappy, but I didn't understand the deep impacts that this was having on my physiological health, my psychological health. And so what happened is it was like a systematic breakdown in my nervous system to the point where uh, my nervous system had just had enough and I started having anxiety attacks every single day. I never knew when the attack was going to come. Every time it happened, I literally felt like this was it. 
I was dying. I, you know, I couldn't catch my breath. My heart was racing and I was like, I don't know how to stop this. I don't know how I'm going to survive this. It's a really like anxiety attacks for anybody who hasn't experienced an anxiety attack before. They are crippling and they are so, so frightening because you do in those moments think that that's it, that, you know, my body is going to, going to pack up it doesn't it's not actually you know feeling like it's something going on with your mental health it's something where your body is no longer coping and it's because of all of this strain that it's under with your nervous system being really impacted by all the stresses that are in your life and of course being girl um I didn't prioritize self-care Everybody else came before me. Everything else came before me. And, you know, there was no time. I did not allow myself any time to take care of myself. I sacrificed everything, thought that 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 was the right thing to do. But what it did is it put me in this place of victimization. And I didn't ever identify with that relationship as being an abusive relationship because. There was never any physical, anything physical going on. So at that time, I was completely really oblivious to what an abusive relationship might look like. I just knew that I was miserable and that I was absolutely falling apart because I was caught in this relationship. And so I asked myself, right, can I sustain this? for another 10 years and the answer was no I can't sustain it so I then went through negotiating a divorce and getting out of that relationship it was a very stressful um, time it wasn't an easy negotiation it took several years and it it was um, it was very painful now I was in my heart of hearts just still searching for love you know and I thought okay now you know my forever man that I married or thought he was going to be my forever man where it ended up being like death by a thousand cuts you know he he didn't work out I want to be in a good relationship but you know I know that there can be good relationships out there now I went rushing in to to find you know somebody else to validate me and so what happened is I describe it as I fell from the frying pan because I was already in the proverbial crap into the fire with the next relationship that I got into and he was charismatic he was such he had the gift of the gab he told me all the things that I had been longing for a man to say to me, you know, telling me how beautiful I was, how much he desired me, how I couldn't imagine any man ever letting go of me, all of this stuff that just made me feel like that princess and made me feel like he was the one who was rescuing me. But there were red flags right from the beginning that relationship that I didn't pay attention to. My self-esteem was in the toilet and he was validating my self-esteem. So 
I'll tell you a little story about something that happened right at the beginning of the relationship. And I think it's really good to give an example like this because I'm hoping that somebody out there, it's going to give them an aha moment for what they're experiencing in their relationship. So right at the beginning of the relationship, I was actually seeing what you would call I had a friend with benefits. Okay, so it was a mutual relationship that I was having with this guy. He was a lovely guy, but we weren't, we were just like, let's not make this serious. We're not about developing a relationship. This is a mutual understanding. Okay, all right, good. We're good with that. That's that's nice. And then I meet this other guy and I'm I'm not somebody who can see two people at once even if it's I just can't that's not me you know I'm one one person is all I can handle so (laughs) so I said to this new person that I met I'm like okay so here's the story I have been seeing somebody it's been very casual but I need to I need to see him I need to talk to him I'd need to let him know that I've met someone else and that we're going to explore a relationship together. And he's like, yeah, cool. Okay. So he knew the details of when and where that was going to take place. And what I did when I got together with my friend with benefits, who I was about to part ways with, is, you know, I said, let's go on a walk. I need to talk to you. So as we were on this walk, I had the strangest feeling that I was being watched. I just could feel it in my gut. And this is something that's really important to listen to because our bodies, when I talked to you before about the anxiety attacks, your body is trying to tell you something's wrong and you can't ignore it. So my body was telling me that I was being watched. I could just feel it. I kept looking over my shoulder and I was like, I can feel someone watching us. And I've never had that feeling before in my life. And so we parted ways and he was really great about it. But, you know, he sort of came back to me later and said, are you sure, you know, I actually think that I really want to have a relationship with you? And I'm like, no, um, I think you've got a bit too much growing up to do. I really think you're a great person, but mm, no, because I had a child already and I really needed somebody to level up and, you know, and I was a package deal. You know, like if somebody just wanted to have something casual, you know, just they weren't showing enough signs of what, I needed for a committed relationship. So that was that. But then I told the the new person what had happened that I had this sense that I was being watched and he had this look of like, I don't know, pride or something come over his face and he said to me, he's like, that is so amazing that you sensed that I was there. Like it was a good thing. So um, so he made that admission to me and even though in my head I'm like, I'm not really good with that. I don't really think that that's a great thing like to have somebody who is keeping an eye on you. But, here's the but, because I 
didn't, my self-esteem was rock bottom and I didn't have personal boundaries or safe boundaries around myself. I ignored that little red flag that was waving and I'm like, talked myself into it being okay, saying, well, you know, he's really keen on you. You know, he's just really interested. And so, yeah, all right, we'll let that one go. But that was the first um, example that he was a stalker and I had no idea that that's what I was dealing with. And I lived in this bubble of illusion for a long time about stalking and what stalking was and and the fact that stalkers, the behaviours escalate over time, as does a cycle of abuse. So the stalking stalking and, um, and narcissism and abusive behaviour, they all, they're all in the same bed together. So um, you can't, there may be circumstances where, you know, say a narcissist isn't a stalker, but I think if you're a stalker, then narcissism and abusive behaviours go together with that. So is there anything you wanted to ask me now before I carry on with how things escalated? I just wanted to add, isn't it crazy how we make excuses when we see odd behaviors? Because sometimes we'll think, oh, look, he just wanted to make sure that I was going to be safe. He was watching to make sure this guy wasn't going to hurt me or maybe he just wanted to see the competition you know you would sit and make up excuses but in the reality he's just being creepy right <laughs> great insights really great insights and that's it. so what i i think okay from my experience okay because i'm not saying i'm the expert of experts, okay? So I think that when we go into a new relationship, we look at this new relationship through the like rose-coloured glasses. The rose-coloured glasses are basically you're looking at things through the eyes of infatuation. And that's when, you know, the chemistry is like just crazy. It just glosses over everything, just glosses it over. So that's where that's where I was at that time and so I made some massively bad judgments and and actually developed a relationship with this person and ended up you know having three children to this person. Now there were so many things that I found out as I was going along and after I had invested myself in the relationship and committed to this relationship, that I reasons why I wanted to extract myself from that relationship, even though I loved this guy, I really, really loved him. And now I think that's, you know, that's another one of those things that helps us all, you know, is that reason why we make those excuses is because we love that person. And, you know, if, if they're asking us for another chance, we want to give that love another chance. We want to see the relationship be a good relationship and we can sort of rationalise and see where things need to change and that change is possible. Of course, change is possible, but 
change is only possible when the other person wants to change. Big so, <laughs> so um took me a while to realize that one that and a lot of heartache and pain. So so this guy who I you know fell in love with he and I've already said he was very charismatic gifted the gab um he was Most a bit narcissist of a narcissist are yeah very charming very charming so um anyway he he was a bit of a party boy he he liked um using recreational drugs and I at that time didn't see the harm in that I didn't see you know the danger I was like well you know if he wants to use drugs recreationally everybody dabbles we were kind of at that age where you know it was people were dabbling and going out to clubs and you know I'll just say that I didn't get involved in all of that the reason being is that I've got one kidney and so I have dabbled I've tried things but chemical drugs don't agree with me they really don't so I have to say no and it's probably been a lifesaver for me that I have had to say no to all of that stuff because I could have very easily ended up on that path of addiction with him so um, thankfully I didn't and but what I discovered is that what he was telling me was just recreational was a full-blown habit and his full-blown habit was with methamphetamine and destroyed his life, my life, our children's lives. Um, And when I think of drugs like methamphetamine, you know, they scare the life out of me because of their power of destruction. And, you know, when you're talking about an addict, an addict is somebody who no man is an island. Everybody has other people in their lives and the other people in their lives get dragged into the path of destruction along with them so it would be so great if you know if I say for example had discovered that my then partner that he was addicted and I could just say okay well Let's just separate you and the problem away from me and the kids and I'm just going to quarantine us and that doesn't mean that I don't love you um, and it doesn't mean that I don't want the best for you. It's just that I can't get sucked into your destructive path because I actually need to protect myself and I need to protect my children. So, and it's not my children, there were three children that were our children. And it, that that was not clear to me. He did go into rehab um, a couple of times. But the thing, the problem was that I was the one who was making um, it a non-negotiable for him. I, You know, I'm like, right, you want this relationship to continue? then you need to go and get the help that you need. I'm not the person who was always saying to me, you're the only one who can help me. And um, that's a really, you know, dangerous position to put somebody in. Too much responsibility. You know, I I had three children 
actually four children to look after. And, you know, I did not have the capacity to be that person to rescue him. So um, it was a, a very treacherous journey that I was on negotiating how to break away from him and quarantine myself and the children from him uh, because the only way he was motivated to make some changes in his life was because I put those ultimatums in place and I said to him, if you want to be in a relationship with me and if you want to be around your kids, you need to go and get yourself cleaned up and I can't do that. You need to go to a place where they have experience and they can support you through that journey and help you to get your life back on track. There was lots of manipulation going on. Now, again, in in this relationship, there was so much abuse going on that I didn't even identify with as being abuse. So whether it was sexual abuse, you know, I had no idea about my right over my body and that, you know, my right to, because I was in a committed relationship with him, I thought that I had to put up with so much that, you know, would just leave me in absolute tears. And that was a huge learning, you know, learning for me is to understand that I have autonomy over my body and, you know, it's up to me to basically put those boundaries in place and say what and when, you know, I am okay with doing. So there's been so much learning for me from going through this relationship. And I guess the thing that is underlying all of it is is my self-worth. That has been like that when you peel away all those layers of the onion, right at the heart of it is your self-worth. And what I discovered is that, oh, I actually didn't really, you know, hold that much value on my self or my life or my rights or anything you know like wow did I have some work to do and so when you know with relationships I what I understood after going through everything and I will just get to the the crimes because many of the crimes that he committed I didn't even see as being crimes because I didn't understand the cycle of abuse. I didn't understand what a partner should and shouldn't be doing. When I said, you know, the things didn't get physical, they did, but I didn't understand because he wasn't hitting me. He he might have put his hands around my throat. He might have held me down in an argument, but I didn't see that as physical abuse. And it's just crazy how we can talk ourselves out of it being abuse or something, you know, like it being okay. And that was me for a long time. And I kept trying to put a quarantine myself and the kids and I eventually got some help from the police and I eventually got a court order, which you'd call a restraining order. And he wasn't allowed to come, you know, within 200 meters of me and the kids and he wasn't allowed to contact I needed to I needed help I just really needed help because 
because of his stalking behaviours, he would not leave me alone. He would not leave the kids alone. He had spyware. He was, you know, he'd break into, I, I would break up with him and it was like a revolving door. He'd keep pushing his foot back in the door. He'd wear me down until I took him back. Then the cycle of abuse would start all over again. And, and I'll just say to that, speak to that for one second, is that it takes women seven times on average to break away from an abusive relationship. And you'll often hear people say, why doesn't she just leave? Why don't they ask, why doesn't he just leave her alone? It would be a hell of a lot easier for a woman to leave if the perpetrator of the abuse just left her alone. So that is the purpose of having a restraining order, is to quarantine that woman and to quarantine those children and give them that boundary that says, right, these are the terms, these are the conditions, you can, you can't. And and he went and breached every single one of those terms because he considered himself to be a maverick. He considered himself to be above the law because he got away with so much. Um, you know, he was a very unlawful person and he had this huge fascination with the mafia. So there were all these threats and everything that, you know, I was dealing with and it was a lot of this gaslighting behaviour and coercive control going on. Hi, I'm Ashley, a true crime fanatic. I'm Dan, and I don't know anything about true crime. Together, we host Fuck That, a true crime podcast that covers cases that highlight important topics that are often overlooked, such as wrongful convictions, domestic violence, and social inequities, sprinkled in with the occasional case with spooky themes. If you are looking for your next true crime fix delivered candidly with a hint of sarcasm, you can listen and subscribe to bi-weekly episodes of Fuck That wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter at FThatPod and at FThat underscore pod on Instagram. One day he went in this, you know, these multiple times of him, you know, bouncing back and trying to wear me down and trying to push his foot back in the door. And I, I got to the stage where I had the restraining orders and I was like, that's it, I'm done. You, we are never, ever going to be in a relationship ever again. But you can still be a father to your children. And when I said that, he said to me, no us, no kids. And when he said that to me, I just took it to be him doing a dummy spit, which, you know, like throwing a bit of a tantrum and saying, well, if, you know, we can't be in a relationship anymore, then I'm not going to make any effort to see the kids when I'm allowed to see the kids, you know. And um, so it was just another form of coercive control, another form of manipulation. And that kind of, that was kind of like a veiled threat. And I knew that there was something else underneath that threat. I just didn't know what it was. So about 10 days later, come back, pick the children up from the bus stop after school. I um, had finished work. I came back home and the kids were all clamouring to the door as they did and then one of them opened the front door and said, Mummy, what's that funny smell? Uh, I smelt it and I'm like, oh, it's gas. 
uh, like get back from the house kids. And the house was literally heaving with gas. I had in that little house, which was a tiny little rental house that I'd managed to secure for myself and the kids, there was a a flu a heater with a flu and it had an open flame. I turned that off in the morning before I went off to work. That the pilot light on that heater was lit. It was an explosion waiting to happen. So that mix of oxygen with gas and flame is what causes it's like ignites and, you know, can cause. It could have been catastrophic. It could have been not only my home, but it would have affected neighbouring homes as well. So it it was just like mind-blowingly scary. Needless to say, the house did not explode. I um, closed the door, completely traumatised, sent the kids to the front fence, saw some neighbours returning from a walk. The neighbour came and turned off the gas at the main and the house, called emergency services. I had about, you know, three fire trucks there within, you know, a couple of minutes um, to evacuate all the gas from the house. And um, the police were there, you know, detectives were there. It was a crime scene. And um, never in my life did I think that, you know, what was happening to me was going to become life-threatening for myself or for my children. So that was my wake-up call. And when that happened, up until that point, I'd been standing my ground. I'd be like, I'm the one who's, you know, providing the kids with the stability, with the security. I'm trying to, you know, lead a normal life here. Um, You know, you're the one with the problem. You're the one who should be leaving us alone. And so I thought that I should be have a right to stay in my home, stay in my job, keep the kids in their schools, keep my friends, keep my family and, you know, stay in my local community. That when that happened, I was like, no, I can't negotiate that any longer. Our lives are at risk. Our lives are at jeopardy and um, we have to go. So we fled. The police could not gain enough evidence to charge him for that, but they did manage to piece together enough evidence from other breaches to the intervention order to finally remand him without bail and they held him for three weeks and in the time that they held him I packed up my home and we moved about six hours away from where we were living and we went into hiding and we changed our names and we tried to tried to basically get over some of the trauma from our experience i had i had to cut myself off from my family from my friends from everybody because they would without wanting to compromise our safety if they knew too much about where we were so that was a very grueling time and i was waiting for the justice system to catch up with him so he had to do 6 months in jail the first time and then so that that period I was basically trying to negotiate what life looked like with a new identity and what we could do 
to keep ourselves safe because the next worry that I had was that when he was released from jail that he would come after me and the kids again because of uh, he would want to get some revenge for me actually standing up to him and saying, no, you actually have to be accountable for the things that you're doing. And you ha- I made him, you know, stand before a judge and get prosecuted for the things that he was doing. So I was very, very fearful that he was going to come after us and try and kill us again. So that was not a happy time in my life. And um, my fears were realised. He did track us down after he was released. So within seven months of me going through that first relocation, the kids and I had to go into refuge and it was Christmas Eve that we went into refuge and we had to go through another relocation, another name change and start all over again. And while we were in How did he figure out? How did he figure it out? How did he find out your names and everything? Okay, so I'll tell you the story, okay? So what happened is I let my guard down. It was just before Christmas and I had cut myself off from his parents. What his parents did is they were, you know, like it's not their fault, you know, like what you know, what happened with their son is not their fault. And they're good grandparents and they wanted to have a relationship with their grandchildren. So I was getting um, letters via my mother and they were basically trying to wear my mother down to um, get her to share information with them and get my mother to persuade me to... um, let them have contact with their grandchildren uh, while I was going through all of these other, you know, um, traumas and trying to negotiate how we were going to keep ourselves safe and that was going on in the background. And I kept standing my ground and just saying, you know, it's I, I've had advice from, you know, family violence services and everybody's telling me, no, do not have contact with them because they will compromise your safety and it's not because they are going to do it maliciously it's because he's going to pick their brains and he's going to find out what he wants to find out and it's exactly what happened so I went down we had to change everything in our lives so we would normally get together with my family at Christmas time on Christmas Eve I come from a German background that's the time that Christmas is celebrated so anyway had to change that. So I went down a week earlier and took the kids down just to see, you know, my mother and my stepdad and we had a very low key, you know, this is the first contact, us seeing each other face to face and I softened and I called his parents and I said, we're down. You can come, you know, like you've got basically today to come and see your grandchildren. And then when I saw them, I softened and I didn't tell them exactly where I was, but I gave them enough information that they could pass that on to him and he figured the rest out. I was very resourceful. I had to be very resourceful because financially I lost everything because of his drug addiction. 
And so I had, I found that I had a talent for sourcing and on selling vintage and antique things because I had just, I've always loved them. I had an eye for them. So it was like a trash and treasure kind of thing. I'd, you know, find one man's junk and I'd turn it into another man's treasure and I'd on sell it. And that became a bit of bread and butter for me and the kids who really desperately needed it. So I just set up a stall in a, a market that was like a seven-day-a-week market. And I'd given his parents enough information, just saying saying to them that it was a seven-day-a-week stall and that was enough information. They knew the area and he was able to do a ring around and find out where I was. He didn't have confirmation, but he'd spoken to the manager and the manager, she was really uh, very smart because I'd already told her that I had an intervention order or a restraining order against my ex-partner. And so when she got this call that he basically said, you know, hi, my name's Steve. I have uh, an Enid Blyton collection. Do you have an Andy there? Um, Because she, uh, you know, I've lost her number. And um, I know she really wants to get this collection from me. Now, he knew that I, that was like Enid Blyton. Yeah, I love Enid Blyton books. You know, I had a very big collection of Enid Blyton books. So I knew that that was, you know, like something that he would say. There was nobody else who I had had contact with, you know, basically, who had made an inquiry about selling Enid Blyton books to me. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh my God. She said, look, we've got a few Andys here, but um, look, how about you leave it with me and give me your number and I'll ask around and I'll, you know, if if it's one of them, I'll get her to give you a call back. So I was like, oh, you're a smart woman. So I had this number and I was able to give this number to the police as soon as I found out about it and the police fast-tracked it and were able to substantiate that it was him calling. So as soon as I found out that it was him, the kids and I went back into refuge and that was it. It was like that was we had to. There was strange stuff going on that could were indicators that, you know, for me were very frightening. I was on a property that had um, tank water. The tank was completely drained when I got back. So there were just like little telltale things that were making me feel really unnerved. I just didn't feel safe there at all. And so the police, uh, you know, knew that uh, were very supportive because they knew of the history. And so I got great support from the police and and they took everything really seriously. And uh, But it still took justice time to catch up. So I had this probably about, I think it ended up being about five months of him being out, you know, roaming around God knows where, you know, I wasn't privy to it, but I just, you know, like I was looking over my shoulder all the time. I was like, I just felt unsafe. The kids, you talk about helicopter mum, you know, the school was briefed about the whole thing. I was like, anything suspicious, you let me know. Um, you know, the kids, you know, would get off the bus. I'd be there to meet them. I'd walk them to the bus. I, You know, I couldn't even get 
out the door with my dog without looking over my shoulder. I couldn't go. I couldn't go for walks. I was just that fearful for my safety and for my kids' safety. It was really crippling and it was just a really horrible, horrible time in my life. And um, I didn't know when things were going to turn the corner. So I persevered with the process. He eventually had to serve another term in, in jail for being a recidivist. So that's a recidivist offender, which is a repeat offender, okay? So he did his second term in jail, and from what I've heard back from his parents, he um, no longer wanted to ever go back to jail ever again. And because of that, that was enough of a deterrent for him to leave us alone. Now, I see fake profiles coming up and little contacts in my messenger saying his little key phrase of how you doing, you know. And so I know that he's still stalking and, you know, the police and family violence services and everything would be quite alarmed by that because they'd be like, hey, you know, it's almost 10 years on and he's still stalking. And I'm like, yes, he is, but it's not escalated he's doing everything from a distance he likes to feel as though he's still got tabs on me he likes to think as though he's still making me feel uneasy unnerved like he's still got power over me let him do what he's gonna do it's not you know like I just ignore it now as long as he leaves the kids and I alone you know I know that his life is not back on the right track and mine is you know I turned that corner I did the work and I have gone from survivor to success and it's been it hasn't been an easy journey because there was a lot you know of recovery work that I needed to do so I suffer from PTSD and you know those PTSD symptoms have improved you know so much um because I've invested in my recovery, because I've tapped into support, because, you know, I have a counsellor and I check in with my counsellor and, you know, I, I look at what my triggers are and I work out, you know, what I need to do to help me when I come up against those triggers and I see how those triggers are just getting, like, smaller as time goes by. And they're not invoking the same fear in me and they're not having the same control over me as they have in the past. So I have been very fortunate uh, to find a good man. And um, we've, I remarried in 2018. And I think that relationship for me, he has been instrumental I guess in providing me with a feeling of security I now know what it feels like to feel safe and secure in a relationship and it's amazing it doesn't mean that we don't have our differences it, you know like we we have to work on those things and um and especially you know factoring in so he's had past relationships I've had past relationships and we both come with our own baggage from the past and we but we talk about that you know very openly with each other understanding that these things 
have influenced the way that we that we feel, that we think, that we react, that we respond. And through that awareness and that, I guess, you know, openness and allowing each other to be themselves, you know, um, we're able to work on those things. And we're both very self-reflective. And because of that self-reflection, we also, you know, take, take it on about, okay, what is it that is there for me? to work on right now so um, I see myself as being on a, an evolutionary path a path of um, continuous development and it feels great because I had kept my life because of all the fears and everything um, because of the experiences that I've been through I wanted to keep my life very small because the world did not feel like a safe place for me and I, I um, sort of describe it as you know, like if you look inside a teacup, you know, you've got, you've got that the cup itself is that container, and you're inside that container, and whatever that cup is is your safe space. It's your comfort zone, and getting outside of your comfort zone is really, really challenging. Um, it's much easier to get outside your comfort zone when you have good self-esteem, when you have good self-confidence, when you know that you've got support, when you know that um, you have a way of being resilient to be able to deal with, you know, whatever it is that might be challenging when you get out of that comfort zone and you, you look, and you've got to have some trust in yourself and in others to get outside of your comfort zone. So I am so compassionate towards anybody who who says after they've gone through trauma, after they've gone through really rough experiences, all I want to do is stay in my safe container. I don't want to get out of that. But what I'd say to you is don't do it alone you know, get support because, you know, like there's there's happiness potentially waiting for you on the other side of that. There's personal development, there's growth, there's, you know, like a life that you can live rather than holding yourself back and keeping yourself small. So um, motivation, that's my, like, you know, I want to end on a positive note. I want to end on, you know, like, a motivational note to say to you, like, you know, please, you know, like access that support that you need. Don't try and do it all on your own. You know, I know that you might have lost trust in others because of what you've been through. Um, and and don't just blindly give people your trust. You know, time is the thing that allows you to establish whether or not you can trust someone. So you don't have to go into anything with blind trust anymore in your life. I would never, ever encourage anybody to just have blind trust in anybody for anything. But try and be open enough to put your boundaries in place and give people an opportunity to prove themselves to you that they are trustworthy because there are good people out there. Um, Not everybody's bad, but you need to 
explore a bit and start with people who are very experienced in the area of domestic violence and um, different forms of abuse. Um, people with lived experience like myself, the support services that are out there and even counselling services, which there are many online free counselling services that are available where you can talk to somebody who will be empathetic and non-judgmental. And, you know, like I've been through a lot and, you know, I can't I can't be here and say I'm proud of everything that I've been through. But what I'm proud of is that I've, I, you know, I'm strong, I'm resilient. I, you know, like I did the hard yards, I got to the other side and I am on my recovery path and I would love it if you could get onto your recovery path too. Absolutely. Take your life back. There's nothing yeah. worse than just handing over your life to someone else and calling it quits. That's not a life. Absolutely. It's so important for people to know that. It's your life. Take it back. Have a voice. Love. Find somebody to love. Somebody who loves you. Really loves you. Not wants to control you. Loves you. Because it's out there and it's possible. But if you're going to keep holding up on these piece of shits, <laughs> you're not going to find it. So, yeah, absolutely. That's a, a great, you know, point too is just valuing yourself enough to know that you deserve to have a good relationship. You deserve to be with somebody who encourages you to be yourself and gives you the space to grow. So one thing that I just, I, you made me think of a red flag and that's jealousy. And I think it's a really important thing to just touch on quickly because my ex-partner was extremely jealous. And when I say extremely jealous, um, we would walk down the street and uh, he would not only glare at other men who looked me up and down, but he would actually, like, he would just say something horrible to them, which was embarrassing for them and embarrassing for me. I would just feel like I wanted the ground to just open up and just swallow me. I was so embarrassed by it. But um, he thought he was in his rights to do it because he thought he was being protective. He thought that I was his woman um, and, you know, it's supposed to be flattering, but it's it was far from flattering to me. Yeah. But it's just a massive red flag if you're in a relationship with somebody who is showing um, traits of being jealous. Now, a little bit of jealousy, I think, is kind of normal um, to creep in, you know, because under, underneath this control thing is insecurity. And I, I think that, um, you know, We've all got little insecurities here and there, and I think that you know that's where the the jealousy monster you know rears its head. But you know, there's you've got to keep it in check. You know, like you, you be real with your partner if you're feeling a bit insecure and say, "I'm feeling a bit insecure about that." You know, can we talk about it? But not doing something where it's um it's that extreme and that controlling um so just please 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 look out for signs like jealousy and please 
prioritize your safety. Right. You're nobody's property. I'll make sure I put uh, links in the show notes about your podcast and the foundation or your transformational services, I should say. If anybody's interested in finding out any more, you can go to www.thekeytobefree.com.au. You can find all my services there. And the other place to go is to go to the Tiara's Cheers and Triumphs podcast, which is everywhere. And I'd like to... If you'd like to access a free gift, I've got um, a couple of things there that might be really valuable to you. The first one is a guided love and abundance meditation. So that meditation is there to help you to heal your heart, but also to help you to heal your relationship with money. So if you've experienced financial abuse and financial uncertainty and financial insecurity as what is something that I have been through, That guided meditation is going to help you to start healing in that area so that you can experience, you know, more love and more abundance in your life. The other thing that is also there is a crisis support list. So you can access that crisis support list um, just by going to the Tiara's Tears and Triumphs podcast and going to the episode notes. And that the support list is for Australia. Anybody in America, do a Google search on domestic violence support in your area. Do a search for domestic violence counselling and don't wait. Just get straight onto it and uh, start getting your life back on the right track. That's right. And anyone that goes to crimeovercocktails.com, I have a whole list of shelters, uh, domestic abuse lines, child abuse, sexual assault, you name it. It's there. Fantastic. Can you share that one with me? Sure. Absolutely. And I'll share mine with you. (laughs) Okay. Perfect. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, I don't think so. Just, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on the podcast. Love it. Oh, of course. Thank you for being here. I enjoyed it. I also want to let you guys know that Crime Over Cocktails is being rebranded. The new podcast is going to be Crime Connections. Obviously, over my course of this podcast, I have taken a different route, and I feel like this is really my calling. And so it's time that we make the connections between mental health and crime, and we become advocates. There's only one way laws and things can change is when people stand up and together and we raise our voice. Even if I never got anything passed, I can always say I tried. And that's a lot more than a lot of people can say. So Crime Over Cocktails will now be Crime Connections. Same great host, same great listeners, same great show, just under a new name. So if you see it come up in your feed, don't freak out and don't delete it. It's me. That sounded kind of creepy. (laughs) All right, my resilience ready community. Until next time.